So of all the psych experiences, experiments gone wrong, my favorite has to be this guy, Dr. Stanley Milgram. Doesn't he look scary? He looks like something from a horror movie. Dr. Stanley Milgram, it's 1961, Yale University. He puts an ad in the paper and tells everybody, I'm looking to do a memory experiment. A memory experiment. So you come in and he tells the participants, you're part of a memory experiment and what we're going to do is we're going to have you come in and test whether administering electrical shocks helps improve memory. So you, you go in and, and you see this poor sap next to you get strapped into a chair and then electrodes put up to his arm. And then you go around the corner into this other room and a man with a white lab coat sits there and tells you, and let me read the instructions to you, your job is to teach the man in the next room a series of random words. Every time he gets a word wrong or out of order, you must press this button and administer an electrical shock. But here's the kicker. For everyone who gets it wrong, you're supposed to crank up the dial. So it gets stronger and stronger each time. There's this diagram. This is the, the, the layout here that you're in one room with a man in a white lab coat and the other man's in the other room. And you, of course, um, think you have to believe that you are actually electrocuting the man next door. Now, the reality is he's a paid actor, but you don't know that. All you know is that he keeps getting them wrong. And every time you do, you're supposed to, the man in the white lab coat says, you must now press the button. So you press the button the first time you do it, and he kind of grunts. And the next time he kind of, ugh. And then it says when it, it, re- it reaches like uh, around 200 volts, he says, I have a heart condition. <laughs> At 250 volts, you hear banging and shrieking. <laughs> At 315 uh, volts, it goes silent. You're supposed to believe that the man next door passed out in pain. If at any point you say, I can't do this anymore, I've got to stop, the man in the white lab coat will tell you the experiment requires that you finish it. That's all he says. He will instruct you to keep going until you reach 450 volts, which is basically like the type of voltage you'd need to quick cook a brisket. (laughs) Here's what Stanley Milgram wanted to know. In this situation right here, how many people will go through with it? Like, how many people will actually sit there and torture a total stranger in the next room because a man in a white lab coat told him, you need to finish the experiment? And he found, shockingly, two out of every three. Almost two out of every three. 65% of the people who participated would administer the maximum voltage. They would fry the man like a brisket. (laughs) Two out of every three Shocking, I know. (laughs) That was bad. But here's where it gets interesting, all right? All right, so go back to this scene. This is what he's thinking. He's looking at this, and this is, this. that was his first question was just, who would actually do it? And he's found two-thirds of them would. Now, here's the question, and the question that I think is much, much more interesting. He asks, how do we change this? Like, what factors would it take to actually influence this outcome? Like, what could we change in this room or in this setup or in this experiment that might actually change how people respond in that moment when they're pressured to do the obviously the wrong thing? And so a few hundred more rounds of torturing, fake torturing the guy, Milgram found that there was one factor, one variable that influenced the results unlike any others. You add one more person. 
If you add one more person, you can dramatically affect the results. Even if a complete stranger, so if you come in and a complete stranger is now sitting beside you, if that complete stranger is next to you, you can influence almost to the point of, of like deciding it beforehand, almost predetermine the results by putting that complete stranger here. Here's what he found. If when the man in the room next door starts to scream, if the stranger next to you says, it's okay, I think we should go ahead with it. Like, I think we should continue. Nine out of 10 people went to the maximum dosage. Everybody's ready to kill him. But if that complete stranger turned to you and said, I'm not so sure about this, just mildly dissents, I'm, I'm not so sure about this, nine out of ten will refuse to continue. Do you see the difference? In complete inversion, influenced by a complete stranger sitting next to you and their opinion of what you should do. If you want to change the results. You just have to add one more person. Milgram demonstrated that the presence of one more person can so influence as us as to almost, almost predetermine what we'll do. That one more person, their opinion, can so strongly influence us that it can almost predecide what we're going to do in life. We live in a society that is what I would call drunk on individualism. I mean, drunk on it, like to the point that they can't see straight, that they're overconfident, like nobody influences me. I do what I want to do. I'm I'm impervious to peer pressure. But the, the research suggests, the research suggests that there's something different going on here. There is overwhelming evidence that your peers, the people you do life with, will all but predetermine decisions like marriage, divorce, babies, education, career, fashion, flossing, voting, lawn care, diet, and now apparently torture. <laughs> there's, a, there's a book, one of my favorite little books by Chip and Dan Heath, two researchers. It's called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. And they have this quote that I just think is like, so sums this up. They say, in this entire book, their entire research, body of research here, in this entire book, you might not find a single statement that is so rigorously supported by empirical research as this one. You are doing things because you see your peers doing them. Who you do life with, who you do life with will influence how you behave, how you eat, who you marry, how much you spend, how you spend your money, how you speak, how much you weigh, where you live, whether you wear skinny jeans or not, whether you watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> everything is touched by the presence of how one more person can influence everything in your life. Now, this insight is not, of course, new. Um, 3,000 years before, like, Milgram was, like, electrocuting people, um, God said, it is not good for man, literally human. It is not good for a human to be alone. Like, God's been pointing this out for a really, really long time. Milgram's just one of the more colorful illustrations of an ancient truth that I want to talk about today. We need other people to speak into our lives. 
Today, I'm going to wrestle this away from the world of psychology, and I'm going to look at this through the lens of scriptures. And I'm going to look at three texts, each one that has a corresponding image to kind of hang your hats on. And I hope, my hope is that this will sober us up a little bit, break us out of our, our fierce individualism a little bit. My hope is that this will lead us a bit more into intentional relationships where we actually speak into each other's lives. My prayer is that these God-given principles would lay a foundation for how we do life together, that what we do is more than just a religious social club, that we would actually care enough and be intentional enough and take the risk to speak into each other's lives. So, With that, I'm going to give us, like I said, three verses, three images. And and I want to start with this image right here. This is a famous image. You you may or may not know it, but it is one of the most famous icons in the history of the world. It's uh, Andrei uh, Andrei Rublev, hard to say his name, Russian. And it's called the Trinity, the Trinity here. And it's one of the most famous Christian icons, period, in the history of the world. And as an icon, it's not meant to be realistic. It's meant to express a truth, a, a truth of Christianity. And in this one about, uh, about, about the Trinity, it's supposed to express to us something about our God. So as Christians, we already know, like the foundation, uh, uncreated reality, the foundation of all that is or ever will be, is not some impersonal force. It's not some law. It's not the second law of thermodynamics, right? It's not just something that happened. We know that in the beginning, God, that everything in the universe is fundamentally and ultimately not impersonal, but it's personal. We believe in a personal God who formed all things. But when we look at this icon, we're confronted with another truth about God, one that that we don't explore that much. And this is the fact that it's not just a person It's persons. The the God that we know and worship is triune, that we believe there's one God in three persons. He's three persons and one God. So let's explain this for a minute. We believe that when God revealed himself to us in the scriptures in, in, in his son, Jesus Christ, he explains that there's one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are three distinct persons. So if you notice in this icon, there's three distinct persons all sharing, fellowshipping around a meal. And if you notice, their faces are all identical. So there's three people, three. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They're three distinct distinct, eternally distinct people, and yet they share so much. They share the same power, the same glory, the same eternity. They are, they share the same life. We can say they are one God. So there's one God who exists in three persons. It is a mystery of the faith that we can't fully fathom in our minds. But in this is saying that uncreated reality, the foundation of everything that is or ever will be, is not just personal, which it is, but it's a personal relationship. That the God we worship is not just in relationship. It's not just something he does. It's something he is. So what does this have to do with us? Well, in Genesis 
chapter 1, we hear that God created man in his image. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this God who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally, three persons in one relationship, are going to say, I want to make a man in my image. And here's the question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God who is in one person or one God and three persons? And we see right here, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the first part of this is, is crystal clear, right? In the image of God, he created him. We all know what that means. It means that individually, you, you, you are made in God's image. There's something about who you are as a person, independent of anything else, that reflects God's glory. But there's something going on here. If you notice it, it's, it's two lines and they're set aside in our text in a weird way. And this is a, this is a form of Hebrew poetry that happens everywhere in the scriptures. It's called Hebrew parallelism. Super, super common. In this, the second line, the second line is basically saying the same thing as the first line in a new way. It's basically completing the thought, giving us a bigger picture of the first thought. So you'll, you'll know this, um, this probably from Psalm 19. It goes like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Do you hear that? The heavens declare the glory. The skies proclaim the works. Are those two separate things? No. Those are two ways of looking at the exact same thing. Say God's glory is everywhere in the heavens and the skies. His his works and, and his proclamation It's everywhere. You hear it. You see it everywhere. And so when we come to this, this is... That type of Hebrew parallelism, we realize that the second line is just explaining, giving us a a more complete picture of the first line. So in the first line, we know clearly the image of God is in him. But in the second line, we see something interesting. The image of God is not just in him, it's in them. The image of God is not just an individual reality, but it's in the couple together. It's in the relationship. That the image of God is not just seen in him, but in them means that the image of God is not just about individuals. Let me say this stronger because this sounds like great. You cannot reflect the image of God in its fullness by yourself. Apart from relationship with other people, you cannot reflect the God who is himself a relationship. Does that make sense? So let's, let's, let's talk about this, why this, this is true a little. Let me talk um, about my wife, one of my favorite things. So there's some things that are only true in relationship, right? So if I say Jenny has beautiful blue eyes, you might say, well, beautiful subjective. No, it's not. But blue is not subjective, right? Like anyone in the world, we could get out like a spectrometer, whatever, whatever that is to measure color. We could say those eyes are blue, independent of anything else going on. It's a biological fact. It's a, it's a scientific fact. Like you can test it. It doesn't change. Jenny has blue eyes, period. But if we say Jenny is forgiving, that's something different. If Jenny lived on a, on a deserted island in the middle of nowhere, it would be meaningless to say she's forgiving. To say that she's forgiving assumes that she's forgiving someone. So 
for the world to see that Jenny is a forgiving person, she needed to marry a man who destroys the house and wakes her up with snoring and, and regularly comes home later than I say I'm going to come home. And then the whole world can see that is a forgiving woman. You see, forgiveness <laughs> wasn't that good. Uh, forgiveness demands relationship. It makes no sense outside of relationship. And, and can I suggest to you that the image of God is something like this. Like, to reflect the fullness, not, not to say you're not made in the image of God, but to reflect the fullness of the God who is one God and three, three persons, the God who is relationship, you have to be in relationship. Like, I need you to truly reflect the, the best things about God, his kindness, his grace, his selflessness, his love, those only exist in relationship. By myself, I can never reflect these. But together, we can reflect the God who is relationship. So do, do, do you hear what this means? I need you. Like, I can't do it on my own. I, I can't reflect the image of God fully on my own. I can't experience. I can't know. I can't feel the forgiveness of God, his grace, his kindness, his love. Without you, I can't do it. I can't be who I'm created to be without you. So if I want to reflect the God who is relationship, I need to add at least one more person to quote Stanley Milgram. I need to add one more person. We have to share our lives with others. We have to be in relationship. So that's the first image right there, the Trinity. That If we want to reflect that image, we have to be seated around a table in that image. We have to be in relationship with others. The second image is this. You know what this is? A miniature model of the temple from the time when Jesus lived. So the temple is this great place, right? Before Jesus came, the temple was where you go to meet God. It's where you taste and see that God is good. It's where you go to experience the forgiveness. The priest would say over you, as far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed your sins from you. You receive, you hear that. It's where you go to fellowship with one another. It is where you go to, to, if you're a leper, it's where you go to hear you're clean. If you are broken, it's where you go for wholeness. If you're sinful, it's where you go for holiness. It is the place where you meet God. It's the place of health and wholeness and holiness. So when the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and he says, hey, I, want, I got a picture for you to, to unpack the Christian life. This is the picture he points to. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, if you grew up in church, what does this mean? Don't smoke. Don't eat tasty cakes. Don't sleep around, right? Right? You are God's holy temple, the place of health and wholeness and holiness. You don't dare put a tasty cake in there. <laughs> you don't go chain smoking. You don't go sleeping around. Your body is a sacred instrument in which God himself indwells. And can I tell you, that is absolutely true. But that's not what that verse is saying. It's true, a few more chapters in 1 Corinthians. But in this verse, 
Um, th- there's a, a slight translation issue here. Some translations pick it up, some don't. In Greek, as in Texan, there are two words for you. Humane and humace, or we would translate it, you and y'all. And this, my friends, is y'all. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple? <laughs> the God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and y'all are the temple. Y'all are the temple. Do you see this? Do you hear this? If you want to experience God's holy presence, it doesn't just indwell you, it indwells y'all. If you want to feel the forgiveness and the holiness and the wholeness of God, it's not just found in you, it's found in y'all. If we want to meet God, if we want to taste his promises, if we want to experience everything that people experience at the temple once upon a time, the Apostle Paul is saying that we need to be part of a body, but it's not your body, it's the body of Christ. We need each other. We need to connect and share our lives and unite our lives that we all unite under the head, the headship of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, then we are the body filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want to be led by the Spirit, if you want to experience the forgiveness of God, if you want to know wholeness and health and the presence of God in your life, the Scriptures teach that I need you. I need you to connect your life with me. You need me to connect my life with you. We need to be one body filled with one spirit. And up to this point, we can say Milgram was right. Milgram's right that the presence of just one more person in your life, this scene is right. If you add one more person, the scriptures are going to say it makes all the difference. But the one nuance we want to make is it's not just any person, right? It's not just a warm body that makes a difference. If a person sitting is, is next to you, it's the person who's going to sit next to you. And when you're ready to push that button, says, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Like, I don't think you should do that. that. It's not enough to have a person next to you. You need a person who's going to speak into your life. Or in GVF terms, we call this, we need someone who's going to connect in accountable relationships. Connect and accountable relationships. If we want to experience the fullness of God, if we want to taste his goodness in our lives, if we want to know his presence, if we want to know his holiness, the scriptures are so clear. We have to connect in accountable relationships. And this brings us to our last verse. And this is one of my favorite verses. Romans 9, or chapter 12, starting in verse 9. And, and can I just tell you, if there is one verse that I wish every small group leader at GVF would get tattooed right here, it is this verse. This verse is like beautiful. This is literally what I pray for us as a community. And it starts out like this. Love must be sincere. And what I, I so love about this verse is that word sincere is um, on a hip, hypocritos or something like that. It, it's literally the translation of not a hypocrite. Not a hypocrite. Love must not be hypocritical. And so in ancient Greek, a hypocrite was a a person who would get on stage and put on a mask and pretend like they're someone that they're not. They're acting. And so Paul picks up this image from, from ancient Greece and says this, if you ever hope to find health and healing in your relationships, if you ever hope to be the body of Christ, 
If you ever hope to experience what the gospel not just means for me, but means for us in our world, you can't wear a mask. You can't have real relationships and be fake. You can't manage your personal image all the time and expect to experience the holy presence of God in your life. You can't do it. If you continually manage what other people think of you and you only let them see the good side of you, they will not love you. They will love the image of you that you project. So you want to know where God-glorifying, life-giving relationships start? We've got to take off the mask. We've got to stop pretending. And, and I think, I, I, I don't say that in a harsh way. So I think this is something we take seriously as a church. This is actually one of our core values as a church, that we want to be authentic is one of the words we use. Like, we don't want to be fake. Like, it's okay to not be okay here. It's got to be. Like, if you can't get up here and say, I struggle with doubts, I struggle with this. Like, if you can't be real, you can't get help. And so this is something that has been core to who we are since we began. And I think a lot of us really, really strive to live this out and take this seriously. And I love that about our church. I really do. But one nuance that I want to add to this is that I think over the years, I've found that as we've embraced this more, some people actually get stuck here. So let me explain. Um, some people read this verse, love must be sincere. M- love must not be, not wear a mask, must not be hypocritical. They're like, yes, that's what I need. I need real relationships where everyone just loves me and I can be who I really am. So they go to their groups or they go to their friends and they just vomit up everything. Yeah, I'm sinning with this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And everyone there is like, love is my response. Love, love, love. And they're like, you know what? They never judge me. They just come around and hug me all the time. And I feel so affirmed. It's so wonderful. I take off my mask and I know that I'm accepted no matter what. So in the process, though, your friends never make you feel bad. Never leave you feeling judged. And you never repent of sin. And you never heal. And you never grow in your faith. And you never become the person that God wants you to be. So I love this verse. I absolutely love this verse. And this is, this is where real relationships start. But can I tell you, this is not where they end. We have to read the second half of the verse. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. If I truly love you, how can I not hate the stuff that's destroying you? If I truly love you, how can I not encourage you to grow? How can I not challenge you? Like, how can I not come alongside you and say, I want more for you if I truly love you? How can I leave you in that? Love, real love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. So love is not just saying, I love you even in your sin. Sometimes love is saying, I don't know about that. You shouldn't do that. 
We don't just need to connect in authentic relationships. We need to connect in accountable relationships. We need people, you need people, I need people who speak truth into our lives. And it is so painful. Can I just say? Unfortunately, I have too many people like this at this point. <laughs> yes, you know what it means. Like, um, I do want to say, though, so the, the phrase we use over and over again as a church is we want you to connect in accountable relationships. That We want them to be authentic, for sure, but they've got to be accountable, that someone actually needs to be speaking into your life. And I know, I know, as soon as we say that, though, everyone's like, yeah, connect, accountable. Accountable has such baggage with it, and there's a lot of questions of whether we should even use the term, but we need something to express that these relationships are more than just cheering each other on in our sin. That's not the church. It's not loving. So, so authentic, I want to give you a picture of what we mean by an authentic and accountable relationship, okay? I'm going to give you our last image here, and, and I want you to take all the stuff that you might have, that baggage about, you know, what your boss does for you to hold you accountable at work, or maybe some past Christian relationship of legalism where they looked over your shoulder the whole time to see if you were sinning or not. Like, I want to set that aside, and I, here's the picture I want to leave in your mind of accountability. And, and to get this, we need to go back 40 years. It's September 27th, 1977. Mom and dad get out of this church service. They walk out to the car. They take baby, and mom's like, oh, the baby's sleeping. You know what? Why don't we go for a Sunday afternoon drive? So they hop in their car. Dad hops in the, in the car. He pops open a pop-top on his tab. You know what tab is? All right, you kids wouldn't know. But he's, he's drinking his tab out of a glass bottle. Mom, she slides in on that vinyl couch of a seat, right? Slides right in. And they don't put the baby in a car seat. What's a car seat? No, the baby's right on her lap. And they sit there and they go for the Sunday afternoon drive. And they're driving down the road. And um, dad finishes his tab. And he's like, ah, rolls down the window, pictures it. Keeps on driving. And they get down the road, little, the baby gets a little fussy. And mom looks over and says, you know what? I'm in the mood for a cigarette. You want one? It's like, yeah. So they start chain smoking cigarettes. Right? This is the picture of the happy family, 1977. They're driving down the road, no seatbelts on, chucking trash out the window, chain smoking cigarettes, all the while mom holds baby on her lap. That was normal. That was the world. Now fast forward. Today. September 27th, 2017. I want you to imagine church finishes. You go out in the parking lot, and you come to the first intersection, and you see someone from our church sitting there at the red light. And you turn your head, and you look at them, and you see them chuck a piece of trash out the window. And then you look, and you notice both of them, neither of them are wearing seatbelts, and the baby's in their arm, and they're chain-smoking cigarettes. Now, here's your moment. You both have your windows rolled down. You're looking at each other at the intersection. They're like, what do you do? What do you do? Yeah, that's right. I tell you what. The first thing you do is say, littering is not okay. This is my town. And then you say, you know, wearing your seatbelt, that's just stupid. That's stupid. You can do it if you want, but it's stupid. Chain-smoking cigarettes with a baby. Do you know secondhand smoke? It's asinine to do that. And you say, last but not least, if you don't pull over and put that baby in a car seat, I'm going to call social services. Right? That's what you do. 
Now, why? Why do you do that? Because what was okay in 1977, we have a different set of values. It's completely unacceptable 40 years later that our culture values things like the safety of children, not getting cancer, uh, the cleanliness of our environment. We value those things so deeply that we self-police. Without prompting, without compensation, without personal interest, you will help enforce these values. You will hold other count, others accountable to the values that we all share, that we all live in. This is a picture of accountability. Can I just tell you, when you become a Christian, it is so much more radical than jumping from 1977 to 2017. You and I don't just jump forward in time. We jump from culture to a different culture. We jump from one kingdom to a new kingdom, from death to life, from one set of values to an entirely different set of values. And can I just say, if we don't have at least one more person who's going to dissent when we're doing the wrong thing, or one more person to encourage us when we're doing the right thing, if we don't have at least one more person next to us who values the things of God, encourages you to follow Christ, who pushes back when you head in self-destructive ways, who speaks into your life, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to reflect the glory of God in your life, to experience his presence at all. I need you, and you need me. Now, programmatically, I mean, Here's the deal. This all falls apart because relationship is organic. It's about family. It's about connection. And so as a church, we, we work hard. Amy, in particular, is working super hard for small groups. If you're on our email list, you got an email this morning that says, here's how you sign up for small groups. And this is our attempt. Our attempt is just to start to say, hey, here's a pathway to start connecting, start building relationships, start at least getting to know some people's names, start sitting around a table, breaking bread, reading some scripture together so that you can create a platform so that healthy people, people who love Jesus, who want, who value the things of God, can speak into our lives and you can speak into theirs.